Hey everyone, we're re-airing one of our top episodes of last year with the lovely Sarah Jones Simmer. She's the CEO of Found and was formerly the COO of Bumble. We know we have a lot of new listeners. You may have missed this one, but we hope you enjoy it. The oncologist said to me, look, worst case, it's spread. I can get you five years. And the great news is I'm cancer-free, so everyone thinks any more than five years. So I'll jump to that punchline, but this five-year thing really stuck with me. The reality is right now we all live as though there's like no expiration date. And on the other hand, if you were told you had a month to live or maybe even a year, you'd probably throw the playbook out on just about everything, right? And live out that bucket list right now. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Sarah Jones Simmer, to our show today. Sarah is an investor, board member, former COO of Bumble, and most recently, the CEO of Found, an evidence-based sustainable weight care program designed to help everybody find self-love. Sarah has spent most of her career investing in, consulting for, and operating businesses, always with a focus on mission-driven brands. In 2017, she joined Bumble when they were only a 30-person team working out of a two-bedroom apartment. She quickly grew with the company and became COO, where she was responsible for strategy, international growth, marketing initiatives, and business operations. While she was at Bumble, Sarah was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. She decided that continuing to work was a much needed distraction from her aggressive treatment regimen that included dozens of sessions of chemo, nine surgeries, and 37 rounds of radiation. Through this process, Sarah became cancer-free and also was critical in Bumble's IPO process and helped the company go public at a multi-billion dollar valuation. Sarah's health experience really pushed her to think differently about her goals and really what she wanted to do in her life. Shortly after the IPO, she left Bumble and took a more adventurous job as the CEO of the healthcare startup Found. Being a CEO was always a quote unquote someday goal for Sarah, but this experience taught her that the right timing will never exist. On today's episode, we talk about the perspective shift Sarah had when she was battling breast cancer and why we shouldn't wait for some arbitrary moment in the future to go after what we truly want. We also talk about her very windy career that led her to Bumble and how taking the time to reflect and have curiosity has always helped her find the right next step in her career. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. When your team reached out to have you on, I immediately jumped on and said yes, because I remember you specifically when Bumble went IPO. I know you were a huge crux to making that happen. And the day you went public, you guys had a clubhouse event. I think it was at 9 p.m. 
West Coast time. And I remember thinking to myself, A, this woman is so impressive. B, she must be exhausted. Like, how is she on this call right now? But I'm so inspired by you. So it's great to reconnect in person today. (laughs) Oh, that's so kind of you to say. And I mean, look, the IPO was an incredible team effort. There were so many folks involved with every step of that process. And I was honored to play a small slice in it. That clubhouse room was really fun. And I remember that being kind of the height of the pandemic and us all just desperately searching for ways to connect with each other more deeply, to have these kind of conversations that might have happened in person before in some sort of celebratory dinner. And so it was an honor to jump on that call and with Whitney and so many others who had supported the Bumble journey and such a small world that you were there. Yeah, I know. It's great. So I'm excited to go into your journey because you're just so inspiring on your own accord. And looking at your journey, you've gone through so much, right? Both personally and professionally. And it actually wasn't until recently where you realized that there'll never be a quote unquote right time, right? To go after your goals and your yearning to be a CEO or start that company. So I'm curious, how has your perspective changed on waiting for the quote unquote right time? That's such a good question. And I think it's not just career where we wait for the right time. I think it's often am I ready to buy a home? Am I ready to have a child? Am I ready to get married? There's so many life events that I don't know you ever feel ready for. And I think that's been a big lesson for me in this journey is that I'm the type of person that loves to be prepared and to do the work and to position myself well. And then at the same time, sometimes you just have to take that leap and take that next step without having all the answers, without having everything figured out. I feel so lucky that I got to sit behind a woman like Whitney for four years and see what it meant for her to be a CEO, what leadership looked Mm -hmm. like, what she did to bring her personal values to the workplace and bring those to life at Bumble. And so I felt so honored to have a shining example of that. I will say that even with an incredible example like that and someone to learn from, I've learned so much in the last handful of months. I feel so honored to get to lead this team. I believe so much in every single teammate and what we're building and their passion for the mission comes through. Mm. And I think for me, that commitment to building something, to understanding what our purpose is, that's the North Star that guides each of us. We know we're changing people's lives by helping them find joy in their body, by helping them define what goals they might have for their weight or their health, and then giving them this toolkit to get there. We really are helping them rewrite the narrative of their future. And that's such empowering work because as you know, the reality is there are still late night emails and there's work to keep up with and there's decks to build. And even when you're doing something with such a mission, like there still is work to do. And we're all working in this crazy climate right now where it's hard to find the edges of home life and work life. And Mm -hmm. I think that North Star of the mission, which motivates me, which motivates our team, that's what keeps us all going. I can't wait to dig in deeper into your time at Bumble and the company that you're with now found. But I want to go back a little bit and really talk about your super exciting and windy career before Bumble. (laughs) I love how you were doing so many unique things and your curiosity always led you to your next step, which I'm very much inspired by. So I'd love to just kind of hear who Sarah was before Bumble. Oh my gosh. Well, as you said, my career has taken a little bit of a windy, curvy road. My partner, Colin, is an architect, and he's known that he wanted to be an architect since seventh grade. I feel like I'm still figuring out what I want to be when I grow up. And I kind of love that because I've allowed my curiosity to guide me. And I think I've learned so much at each important chapter. So I went to school for music, not even a Bachelor of Arts in music. I have a Bachelor of Music degree. My courses were things like 
orchestra and music theory, music history. And I loved that experience. I think the discipline that music teaches you, the combination of right brain and left brain, I can still see how that shows up in my work life today. Needless to say, though, I did not end up playing in an orchestra. I wasn't quite sure what to do after I graduated. And I joined AmeriCorps Vista, which is kind of like the domestic version of the Peace Corps. It was an amazing place to just serve and to build some professional skills, to really figure out what I wanted my next chapter to look like. I got a graduate degree during that time as well. And then moved from AmeriCorps to a hedge fund, which is a somewhat unusual transition in a way, but I loved investing. Mm. I felt like you got to see so many companies at different stages and scales. You saw management teams, you saw supply chains, you could develop pattern recognition around what good looked like. And I think I love this idea of having a portfolio approach to my career where you're looking at different things day in and day out and drawing the understanding and synergies between them. And I I think now so much of my early career as an investor and the way that it taught me to be analytical and to understand business shows up in the way that I think about being a CEO. So I did that for a while, but I, I missed some of that purpose-driven work that mm-hmm. I had done as an AmeriCorps Vista and was able to find this incredible boutique consulting firm in LA that focused on social impact, philanthropy, sustainability, historically for celebrities and high net worth individuals. And then I really came on board to help build out a corporate practice. So to think about how do we define our values around issues that matter to us as a company, that matter to our employees, that matter to our users and the customers we're trying to sell to. And how do we think about leveraging every part of our business and activating that full asset base against something we care about? And how do we create ROI around that? Does it make people more loyal to our product? Does it make people more inclined to try us? And that consulting work was, again, just this great way to look at a bunch of different businesses and see what was working and what isn't. And then I think like many consultants, I got to a place where I was tired of handing off the PowerPoint presentation, right? And letting someone else execute. I wanted to run the plays. And so I went to an early stage startup here in Austin in the clean beauty space, learned so much from that experience. But then two years in, the Bumble opportunity came knocking and it really was a dream job. It sort of threaded together all these elements around impact and mission in the DNA, but a growing scalable business. And the team clearly had product market fit, had an enormous amount of passion and creativity. They knew where they stood in the world. And what they were looking for in my role was someone to help build the infrastructure for scale without collapsing in on the magic that Whitney and the early team had created. And it was an incredible opportunity. I spent four years in the business. I got to touch just about every aspect of it. Spent a lot of time on kind of commercial go-to-market strategy. How do we show up in different parts of the world? I got to lead our work into India, which was really exciting. And I will always bleed yellow. It will always be a really big part of my story. But as you said, shortly after the IPO, in part because of some things that were happening in my personal life and with my health, I made the decision to leave and think about writing the next chapter. Yeah. And there's so much I want to unpack in your incredible story. So you talked about your family moved from LA from that consulting job to Austin, and you still had that itch to do something entrepreneurial and to build. And it's always I'm smirking because when you talk about your story, all the dots make sense now. But at the time, right, I'm sure you're like, okay, I'm a musician. And then I'm going to go work for a nonprofit. And then I'm gonna work at a hedge fund, like it must have seemed so crazy. But it's just beautiful to see how all your worlds have now collided. And with Bumble was a chief of staff opportunity. And I'm curious, what really drew you specifically to that role? And I'd love to hear how big Bumble was at the time, because it was fairly still a small business at the time. 
It was. It was 30 people in a two-bedroom apartment. There were folks making phone calls from the bathtub, like very classic startup story. (laughs) Pretty shortly after I joined, we actually did move to a bigger office. But yeah, it was a small team. And I think the role was chief of staff. But really, at that stage, it was a bunch of Mm. really bright, hungry generalists. And we were all wearing hats far out of our job description. In fact, I I don't know that most people even had job descriptions. I think we were united by the mission we realized that Whitney and the early team was onto something and we needed to find the best way to scale it. And as I said, keep that magic alive. And so I came in as chief of staff. I transitioned to COO about three months in, but so much of the team at that early stage was just about how do we get this product in more people's hands, make them Mm -hmm. fall in love with it? What are we learning from our users and how do we build and scale and design this business around that? I love that. And I know in another interview, a big driver of you also joining Bumble, you mentioned we're showing what's possible for a company that puts women in the driver's seats and also puts kindness as a core value while generating revenue and profit. And I just get goosebumps doing that because that's my biggest mission in life. And I'd love to hear more about how that really resonated with you when you joined Bumble. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I think I've been lucky to work for both men and women leaders throughout my career But there's obviously something very special about Whitney and her leadership style, and that really attracted me to what Bumble was building. And I think what's so interesting there is the internal team reflected the product that we were trying to build in the world as well. I mean, when Whitney first launched Bumble, and and by the way, and she shared this, she had to be convinced to go back into dating after her prior experience. But many people said to her, this is already a really crowded landscape. There's OkCupid, there's Tinder, there's eHarmony, there's plenty of fish. Like, why does the world need one more dating app? And her realization was that no one had built those products Mm. for women. And the reality is when you build for women, everyone has a better experience. Some of Bumble's biggest advocates are men, right? Because they are now feeling like women are approaching them and it makes them not have to act as the conquester, but they're in receipt of this interest and attention and they love it. And I think that that idea of like, how do we understand the end user and build products that people want to use and focus in on the parts of the ecosystem that maybe were ignored historically. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of really great business ideas come from. Where are the parts of the economy of the ecosystem that not enough attention has been paid? I'm so inspired to see those conversations happening around women's health right now. Mm -hmm. I'm inspired to see those conversations happening with mental health. I think now that I work in digital health, I really have taken a look at that ecosystem and a lot of where the most exciting innovation is happening is again in those populations that are very large and substantial. Women are 50% of the population and yet products are not being built for them. So how do we take this away from being a discussion of like, oh, women's health is niche. Yeah, actually women women make up 50% of the population and 80% of consumer decisions. Maybe we should pay attention to what kind of products they're going to want to use and engage with. Oh, amen. I mean, I can't tell you how many people have said like, oh, your podcast is amazing. I love the niche you're in. And I also have a business around women's health and hormones. They're like another niche, like you're really doubling down. I'm like, women are 50% of the population. Like you said, 80% of the consumer making those decisions. And I always laugh and hopefully these conversations will change that and more businesses will come out. But yes, we are not a niche. There's a lot of impact that we can do. Yeah, there's an amazing tagline from a campaign I worked on with Gucci many, many years ago but it was none of us can move forward if half of us are held back. And that's so true. Like the entire economy is being held back by the fact that women aren't being addressed appropriately in it. And I think that is starting to change, but it's taken far too long to get there. 
Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use, we make it effortless effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com and check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. Absolutely. Well, hopefully we can play our part in making that change. And going back to when you were at Bumble, you know, you mentioned three months in, you became COO. I'm curious, did you have any imposter syndrome that you were dealing at the time? I know you were hands-on building at a company before, but any feelings that you were going through taking this big position with a very high growth company at that moment? You know, I think like so many high growth businesses, we were all figuring it out as we went. It was Whitney's first time as a CEO as well. I think a lot of that does come to trusting your instincts, not being afraid to ask questions, not being afraid to ask for help. I sort of bristle at the phrase imposter syndrome, and I think it's so often applied to women. But I think, of course, you have these moments where you're like, do I know what I'm doing? I face this sometimes now in the CEO seat. And as I've seasoned in my career, which is a nice way of saying I'm getting older, I think you you realize a lot of that doesn't go away, but you now have maybe seen more reps or you get more comfortable with the idea that maybe you haven't seen this exact example, but you have points of reference mm. and you realize that everyone around you is still kind of making it up as they go. They're doing it with the best of intentions, with the best information they have at the time, but no one has sat exactly in your seat, exactly in this business at any point in history. And so really it's each of our jobs, no matter where you sit in the organization, to take in the information you have around you and use your best judgment to act and not expect that there's some magical playbook that everybody else has that you're somehow missing. It's so true. And I want to underscore that because I remember it wasn't until I was boots on the ground working at a startup where I realized, wow, nobody knows what they're doing. Because you always think like, I'm not going to start a business yet because I don't know, you know, what do I know? And then I joined a business and it's like, to your point, we're all learning, we're all figuring out there's zero playbook. So it it was just a big light bulb moment and really gave me the confidence to go out. But you're right. Nobody knows the right next step. But similar to where you are in your position, I'm sure there's some more pattern recognition. And like you said, you have a little bit more reps. And one thing you mentioned in another interview at that time when you were with Bumble in that COO position, the importance of having the right mentors or advisors Mm. and people around you. So I'd love for you to talk more about what that looked like when you were building your career as an operations guru. (laughs) Yeah. So I got very lucky and was able to connect with Adam Brandt, who's become a dear friend, and asked him who he would recommend that I speak to that had been in the COO seat before. And I think the first lesson is like putting your hand up and not being afraid to ask for support and to be connected to other people. And he helped me assemble almost a mini advisory board for myself. One of those women was Kat Cole, who remains an incredibly dear friend to this day. She's now the president and CEO of Athletic Greens. And by the way, someone you should definitely get on this podcast yes, at some point. Yes. 
but previously was a COO and president of Focus Brands. I've learned so much about leadership, organizational design, authenticity and transparency and honesty with your team from her. She was an incredible leader. He connected me to Marnie Levine, who at the time was the CEO of Instagram. She's now chief business officer of Facebook. Adam is such a giver, which you would guess by the books that he's written. But I think not being afraid to say, I would love to speak with other people who have sat in this seat. And I would also encourage women who are reaching a different phase in their career to think about joining someone's personal advisory board and being their cheerleader, being in their corner. I now feel like there's a few women in my life that I serve in that role for. And it's just unbelievably inspiring. Mm -hmm. And candidly, I learn more from them than they are learning from me. I think the putting yourself in someone else's shoes and helping them think through a business problem makes you a sharper operator at the end of the day. And that's stuff that you'll take away to put into practice for your work as well. Absolutely. And I know a lot of people always ask questions or like, is there a formality behind this relationship? I know it could look in so many different ways, but looking at the women that you mentor, is it a monthly check-in? How are you developing that relationship given your own busy schedule when you're advising other people? Mm, that's a good point. So I've done it both in informal and formal ways. There's a platform that I'm very involved with and also an investor in called Ceresa that does really incredible formalized mentoring. And I find it so satisfying as a mentor to be a part of that. And that is a more regular monthly cadence. They also do a beautiful job of helping you better understand the wildest dreams of the person that you're mentoring and take them through a real process. On the other hand, I've also done it in really informal ways. I think what's made those sessions feel most effective for me and for the mentee is when every time we come together, there's a pretty clear understanding mm -hmm. of what problems are top of mind for that person. So we have actual examples and a framework to talk through. I think sometimes giving advice in the theoretical is hard. And what is really fun is like, all right, let's get in the mud together. Like, tell me everything you're facing. Be really candid and transparent about it. And then like, here are some tools that I might've used in a similar situation, or here are some patterns that I've seen elsewhere. But I love when folks come and have a really effective understanding of how they want to use the time and what they might want to better understand at the end of it. And that I can be a sounding board. And again, like playing that mud puddle with them. Yeah. And this is so important because a lot of women are, you know, a little intimidated to start a business solo. And sometimes it's like, let's think about being a little bit more resourceful and putting together that personal advisory team, because you, even if you don't have a co-founder, you have someone in your court who's pushing you on. So really taking the time to invest in those relationships. And it takes time, right? It's not something you just message someone the next day and assume they're going to reciprocate. It's a long-term process, but I think that's super important. So it's great to see how you're impacting other people's lives and what an impact it continues to make in your role today. So going back a little bit, you talk a lot about how your life turned completely in May 2020, you know, the way you shifted your motherhood, work and your entire life, you completely had a new perspective. I'd love for you to kind of take us through that moment and share what you were really going through. Hmm. I mean, so I think everyone's been really going through it since about March of 2020 when the pandemic shut us down. I obviously, alongside so many others, was navigating school shutdowns and having kids at home and trying to figure out how to juggle that with being present and online for Zoom calls and, and helping a team navigate the shutdown, helping a Bumble member base navigate that, supporting small businesses in our community. And interestingly, just as I felt like I was getting my footing a little in May of 2020, I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. Candidly, I actually discovered it because we were trying to get pregnant, thinking about expanding our family. Q2 
cancer was not the outcome we were hoping for. I am glad that we caught it when we did. Mm. Stage three means it's not metastatic. And so there is a chance to kind of turn the tables on it and keep it at bay. And, but it, it changed a lot. I mean, overnight in a sense. And it, it was interesting. I had no family history. I had just turned 37 at the time. And so I hadn't started getting mammograms. I had no reason to really think that I would need to. And you pretty quickly are called into clarity of like, what is most important to me? And I spent some time getting some personal stuff sorted. My mom was amazing. She was like on a plane literally the next day with no return flight. And I feel so grateful that she was ready and willing to drop everything and show up for me and support my kids through it. My daughters were three and five at the time. So some understanding from the oldest one. And we were honest with them about what we were going through. But I think they were too young to even know what that really meant. They'd never seen anyone in their life go through cancer before. And there are very visible changes. I had some surgeries pretty quickly. I lost my hair right after my first, or like 10 days after my first chemo treatment. And so, you know, it was hard to hide it from the kids. They see these changes happening. They want to participate in some of them. They helped me cut my hair. It was really sweet at the time. But there's also downsides, like the lower energy and seeing me vomit, right? Like that was mm. that was new to them. And I just feel so grateful to have had my mom, my partner, these folks in my life who were able to show up, my sister and my brother. I mean, really extended family. You feel so challenged with a cancer diagnosis, but you will never feel so loved. And that was really special, especially because frankly, it was also really strange. I had to go to all of the appointments by myself mm. because of COVID. You're being diagnosed by someone who you can tell just wants to reach out and hug you and they're doing it behind a mask and they have to keep their six feet of distance. And so it was simultaneously very lonely, but also I did feel so loved. And then on the work front, this is one of those moments where I'm just so grateful I had a leader like Whitney to be able to share this story with. And I have so much empathy for women who don't have that situation. Breaks my heart. She was one of the first people that I told. I love my work. I mm -hmm. always have, but I think I especially did at that moment with Bumble. And work for me has always been this way of making the love that I have for the world visible. There's this great Khalil Gibran quote that is, work is love made visible. And I, I genuinely believe in that. I believe that this is a way that we show our outpouring of like our gifts, our passions, our interests to those around us. So all that to say, I knew that work would be an outlet for me during my treatment and that I wanted to continue to work in some form. I also recognize that my emotional bandwidth was a lot more limited. I can remember specific moments of being in a biopsy and getting an email and being like, I can't deal with this right now. And that philosophically hadn't been how I operated before. I loved the like people development, professional development, being engaged in people's lives. I just didn't have it. I had no emotional bandwidth in that moment. And Whitney recognized that and helped me craft a role that was narrower and deeper, mm -hmm. that was focused on transformative strategic projects, including the IPO, and that enabled me to engage intellectually, but reserve some of that emotional energy. And I feel really grateful for that. And at the same time, when I got to a moment where I felt like I couldn't work, you know, during the radiation process for me, there was just like too much ambiguity with my schedule. It's every single day. I had the ability to take a step back and take a couple of weeks to really focus on myself and getting through that part of treatment. And that was such a gift. And I think so much of going through treatment is knowing what 
you need in which parts of it mm. because you're going to have people coming at you and you may need that love or you may be like I do not want another home cooked meal from anyone else like I just want to be in a bit more silence or I want time to process independently and I think it's okay to recognize that you can define what you need yourself and that can change over the course of your treatment as well many of these diseases are things that you're going to be in treatment for for years I'm cancer-free now. I have been since March of 2021. I'm still in treatment. I still do chemo. I take an oral one now. It's less disruptive. My hair is growing back. But what I've needed at different stages of the treatment, I feel so lucky that I was in a position that I was empowered enough to ask for it. And Mm. sometimes asking for help is hard, but I feel really grateful that people showed up for me when I needed it. Oh, oh my God. Well, Sarah, I appreciate you sharing that story and just so glad to see how well you're doing now and on the other side of it all, because I'm sure it was really difficult. And one thing you just mentioned that came up when I was listening to some of your past interviews is this was really one of the first times you asked for help because typically you're the type of person that would, like you said, jump into the problem and never really ask others to help you, but this you had no choice. So it seems like that was a huge learning. And also it seems like I'd love to get your perspective, the deal team, which I came from the world of banking. I've never seen such an amazing women powerhouse deal team put together. So was that a big impact to just your journey running the, the S1, taking the company public during that really difficult time? Mm. No, I mean, it was amazing to be surrounded by so many incredible women, both on the Bumble team, our CFO, Anu, this woman, the Blackstone team, especially folks like Kelly Morrell, who's continued to work on powerhouse women-oriented deals yes. like banks, et cetera, since then. The bankers at Goldman, at City, and others, I think, of course, having so many women's faces on these Zoom calls made it easier to perhaps like show up in a turban and talk about the fact that I needed to schedule time for a double mastectomy on Thursday and the S1 needed to be filed just after. But I also think we're reaching a different level And some of this is pandemic inspired of of just like humanity across the board, where we recognize that each one of us is on a journey right now and navigating things. And I think there's such beauty to being able to talk about it and being more open. I think we hit a lot of our personal lives behind the scenes. And now there's kids showing up on Zoom calls because this is just the reality of life. And I hope that those are the types of like human connections that we're all able to build with one another on a professional front and just recognize that these are humans on the other side of the Zoom screen. And I hope we don't lose that as the world continues to open back up. I think that's one of the silver linings of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned, you know, the day of the IPO, you were stepping out as yourself in a new form. What did that day symbolize for you? It's funny at the time, and sometimes even when I tell the story, it doesn't feel very symbolic. It feels a little like insecure and self-centered, but I hadn't yet left the house without a a turban or wig on. And it was such a special day. You know, it's really Whitney's day more than anyone else, but certainly a full team effort. But it did feel interesting and exciting for me to to be like, wow, I think I've turned the corner on this disease in some ways. I didn't know I was cancer-free at that point yet. I was was definitely still in treatment, but I had stopped the heavy chemo enough Mm -hmm. that my hair had started to grow back. And I knew that I was going to want to look at these photos forever in the future and share them with my children. And I don't want to wear a turban. And that was a part of my own personal journey with it. But it did it did feel like these sort of two symbolic threads were almost coming together, the cancer journey and the bumble journey. And what an incredible thing for me. I, I still just feel like very humbled by that. 
Yeah. And it just reminded me because you were talking about how hopefully we can stay in this more humane world of just the realities of life and seeing you in that photo and with the kids involved and just everyone. It's like, I get goosebumps. I can't even put the right words in place, but it's just seeing women at so many different life stages, just taking this company public and just at the time, I didn't know what you were going through, but just so inspired by just looking at that photo and how far you've come. So it's just gives me goosebumps just talking about it. So you have this all success, you put cancer behind you when the company went public, you ended up deciding to take on this new role as a CEO. So I'm sure a lot of people are like, Sarah, what's going on? What was inspiration? So I'd love to hear what was going through your mind once you kind of hit these large milestones in your life personally and professionally. Certainly the cancer journey was one of introspection in general. And I've talked a little bit about this before, but there's a moment that I remember pretty distinctly. It was the night of my big surgery, the double mastectomy, and they do pathology on everything. And ideally in that situation, the chemo has already reduced the cancer. And so when they pull the tumors out, you want to see like no evidence of disease. And unfortunately that wasn't the case for me. There's quite a bit of residual disease. And so that worries everyone. And they decided to stage me again and do, you know, brain scan, bone scan, et cetera, check for metastasis. And I was really worried. I remember sitting with my partner and the oncologist said to me, look, worst case, it's spread. I can get you five years. There's been enough innovation in medicine. There's new treatments coming on all the time for this HER2 related disease. I can get you five years. And the great news is I'm cancer-free. So everyone mm. thinks i more than five years. So I'll jump to that punchline. But this five-year thing really stuck with me because I think the reality is right now we all live as though there's like no expiration date. And on the other hand, if you were told you had a month to live or maybe even a year, you'd probably throw the playbook out on just about everything, right? And live out that bucket list right now. And the reality when people say like, live like there's no tomorrow, like we actually really can't do that. Everyone would be just like hungover all the time. But <laughs> I think the... This five-year framework really sticks with me because then it becomes about what changes do you make on the margins? And like, mm. what's really important to you? Who is important to you? Are you showing up for them? Are you investing in the things that really matter? Because I think philosophically, we can go through life and be like, oh, well, I'll get to that after this, after I graduate, after I complete this project, after this board meeting, then I will remember to call my girlfriends or text my sister or what have you. And if you only had five years, you wouldn't put those things off and you would be very clear about your purpose. You also would not throw the playbook out and just like live life like no tomorrow. So it's more about the changes on the margin. And I think for me, as I reflected on like what brought me joy in work and how I wanted to spend the next chapter of my working career, whether at Bumble or otherwise, I felt in that moment, like I, I wanted to go build again. Mm -hmm. Like I've learned all these incredible lessons, being able to sit behind someone like Whitney and watch her lead. And I, I wanted to make the battle myself. I wanted to integrate those learnings and think about going and scaling a business again. I love the phase between like product market fit and IPO, right? Where like, you know, you're onto something, but there's so much to figure out and you can see your fingerprints all over the business and you can really swing for the fences. I wanted to go do that again. And what was so magical as I met, found, and the team that had led the business thus far is 
it's so to the credit of Emily and Swapi and all of the other early team there that they built this amazing foundation. I still felt like I could come in and adopt this as though it was my own and really play a role in shaping the future for the company. And it's in a category that I care deeply about. I've had now way too much exposure to the healthcare system. There's a lot that's not working. But a lot of what I saw was advancements in things like telehealth and people now getting more access because they could do it from the palm of their hand and they could do it in a supportive and judgment-free way. And that really helped with the areas of the healthcare system where stigma prevails, right? Look what's happened in mental health recently. It's so unfortunate that it took a global pandemic for us to have a global conversation about burnout and anxiety and depression, but now people are getting access to care and that's incredible. What found is working on is weight. And there are really similar dynamics there where there is a lot of stigma. People mm-hmm. are made to feel shame for their bodies. They're told to eat less and exercise more, but there's no recognition that actually it's your biology that's standing in your way in many cases. And that no amount of diet and exercise can repair broken signaling between your brain and your stomach or hormone imbalances, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so how do we at found really evolve the conversation around weight help people understand that they should accept themselves for who they are, where they are right now. This is not about shaming you or shaming your body. This is about you defining joy for yourself, what joy in your body would look like and us helping you get to those outcomes because we give you a toolkit of options. We give you a coach, we give you a clinician, we give you medication if that's indicated, but this is about you defining what your journey needs to be and us helping you get there. And what really excites me is that the stories we get from folks, this is not about the number on the scale, right? It's not, I lost 40 pounds, I lost 50 pounds. It's, I keep up with my kids on the playground, or I can fly and not ask for a seatbelt expander, or I ran a 5k with my girlfriends or climbed this mountain. Like, what is it that is going to bring you joy in your body? Let's get you there. I'm also so inspired just how you guys are doing a more holistic view, which I'm just personally passionate about in health in general. So really love what you guys are building. And we're going to be sharing all of the information in our show notes. And when we got on this interview, you mentioned, even in this role right now, you're still learning, right? And you're a few months into the CEO role. So I'm curious, what were some of the biggest learnings you've experienced or biggest surprises that you've encountered since being the CEO at Found? Mm. I mean, look, I am just so incredibly inspired by our team and the mission and the problem we're trying to solve. And most of all, the members that I hear from and the non-scale victories they have, the things they're able to do. I've definitely learned a ton very quickly. We're a remote first team and I'm pretty extroverted by nature. So I love the energy of being in a big, busy, all hands in person. And we've got to figure out how to bring that same energy and joy to an online setting The great benefit of working remotely is that we can get amazing talent everywhere. And that's been essential for us as we grow and scale. The tougher thing is how do you build community and connection? And so I think some of that is me recognizing that as CEO, that's arguably my most important priority is building culture, is helping this team feel like they understand my vision, they understand the market opportunity, they understand the strategy that we're undertaking to get there, and then mobilizing and energizing them around that. And that is such a joy that that's basically my job description. That's also, it's hard. It's hard in a remote setting. It's hard when people are dealing with a pandemic and they're juggling kids at home and they're juggling just really blurry lines between work and life. And so we're, we're doing what we can to invest in that and to try to create 
the ability for folks to do their best work, but also live their best life at the same time. And I think that is an imperative on every business leader right now, especially as we're kind of in these late stages of the pandemic. So that's been a really big learning for me. You know, the other big piece of my job is hiring an amazing team of people that are a lot smarter than I am. And I feel really lucky that we've added some incredible clinical leadership. We have a chief medical officer who came on board, Dr. Rekha Kumar, recently, who's the outgoing medical director of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. So like literally writing the test to certify obesity medicine specialists. And then on behavioral health side, Dr. Acacia Parks, who's our chief behavioral health officer. Our model really centers medicine and behavior change. They work better when they work together. And so we need a leader like her who's designing the program and the theory of change and helping to bring it to life through our coaching organization. So I feel lucky to get to work with women like that who honestly dazzle me. They know so much more than I ever could about these things. But how do I think about my role as facilitating their ability to do great work and the resources they need, whether that's team or financing, to bring that to life? And I feel lucky that we got to join existing incredible executives. And really, the art now is in scale and execution and ensuring that everyone is pointed in the right direction and understands the role that they play in growing the business. Yeah. And what you mentioned, and I know every company is figuring this out, especially if you're a remote first and everyone's distributed, is how do you continue to talk about the mission and the vision, right? Like you said, it's so different when everyone is separate and you're not all in the room where you can collectively get everyone together. And I'm curious, have you found any, I don't want to say hacks or any systems that really allow you to be more collaborative and really to hone in on the mission and the vision? Because especially at this stage of a company, when you are growing, you have product market fit, like that is so important, I would Mm. think. So anything that has worked for you, because I know it's something we're all trying to just figure out the best way to do that and build that culture. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'd love to hear other people's advice on this because we are still figuring it out. Two things I might highlight. One, we have now gotten in the habit of doing all hands on a weekly basis. And for a while, I felt like, gosh, everyone just has too many meetings. So they really need one more meeting. But a lot of the times, it's just a chance for us to see each other's faces mm-hmm. and like see who's on the call. And we have one version that is called show and tell. And that's really like, around the horn, you know, who wants to share something they've been working on, who wants to celebrate a new video asset that was created or a new piece of engineering code that was committed. And then on the alternating weeks, it's leadership oriented town hall, which leadership makes announcements. And then there's an ask me anything. And we answer questions. Sometimes it takes the full hour. Sometimes we're done in half the time, but I think this regular cadence of Mm -hmm. like, actually, let's just all get on the horn. And we're about 250 people right now. So that's a expensive meeting, quote unquote, in the sense that it's an hour of everyone's time, but that's a really unifying ritual for us. And that may change as time bears on, but I think that's been one of them. The other is that Slack is obviously our ecosystem for how we communicate and show up. And I think it's of course, really important to have clear guidelines for like, this channel is going to talk about this project and here's the updates that you need to know. But we've tried to be intentional about having a couple water cooler channels too, where people talk about their kids or their pets or their runs for the day. You know, we've got a a group that really loves movement and exercise. And I think finding digital water coolers like that and ways for people to connect as humans, not just as colleagues is really important. I love that. I'm I'm taking mental notes for that and definitely will share any other insights I get for other incredible women like you on the podcast because I'm always so curious how it's going to work in this new world that we're all in. 
And the last question I'd love to ask you, looking at your entire career trajectory, even to this date, you very much have always focused on working on meaningful work. And as someone who has done that many, many times again and continues to do that, what advice do you have for women who might not know what their calling is to find something that is more meaningful in their life? You know, I think you hit the nail on the head. Meaning is a bit different for everyone. And meaning may be tied to issues that you feel most passionate about, whether that's quality or the environment, any host of things related to social justice, for example. Meaning can also mean what you enjoy doing and the legacy that you want to build. And I think we need to remind ourselves to put this emphasis on finding joy Mm. in the work that you're doing and knowing that that is only for you to define. I think in some ways in my early life, I had this expectation that like work was supposed to be work. Like it's called a job because it's work. (laughs) Like It's a job you have to do. And I was a little bit conditioned by other people's expectations, I think. And you're right. And you pointed out earlier, my career is nonlinear. Like I have definitely chased my own curiosity, the things that seemed interesting to me, the people that I wanted to be around and wanted to work with. And I think when you find your version of meaning, that does make it easier to pour yourself into your work. And sometimes that can make it harder to figure out where to draw the line and like set boundaries for your work. I will admit that that's something I'm still working on. But I think My dad had this saying, like, find a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And Mm -hmm. as cheesy as that sounds, I think there's some truth to that. Like, We all do have to do things we don't want to do. Like I said earlier, the emails and the decks and like there is real work there. But when there's real connection to mission and meaning Mm -hmm. and you at your core love what you're doing, it does make it that much easier to pour yourself into something. And so find that meaning for what it is for you. Actually, when I was reflecting post Bumble. And as I was thinking about the next chapter, I took some time to really just think about like, what do I like to do during the day? Where does my mind wander when I let it? What are the things that I'm kind of organically thinking about? And interesting for me, like as much as I had said, I don't want to do anything in health. I have this PTSD from this cancer experience. I was like, I'm thinking about wellness a lot. Like I get so much joy from movement, from going on super long walks, from being outside. If I was actually to craft my perfect career around what I enjoy doing and where I find meaning probably is something in health and wellness. This is where my mind wanders when I let it. And I think that exercise of like, when you don't structure your thinking, where does it go? It's a really good way to figure out your passions. And there's so much opportunity in the corporate ecosystem today and in ways that people are even defining what work looks like for them. Mm. doesn't have to be a nine to five job that you stay in for like two and a half years and then you move to the next thing. Like, Find your side hustle, find the things that bring you joy, like build your version of your career based on how you want to spend your time and what your organic passions are. And that will make the work have meaning and it'll make the work have meaning for others as well. I love that. And just the fact that you said taking the time to let your mind wander, I think for so many years, I was figuring out what my passion was, quote unquote. And it wasn't until COVID hit where I I was forced to take the time because our business was slow. We worked with a ton of retailers and it was the first time I reflected. I was like, wow, I'm very passionate about women. And it fell into the podcast. And then my business idea came about it. So I always love hearing 
other people's perspective of how you take the time to find that joy in your life and meaning. And as much as people told me, like, silence yourself, go sit in the park and meditate, I never did it. But it's true, right? It's like, where does your mind wander? Where do you get excited? Mm -hmm. What feels like when you're working, you're in flow, and it's like three hours just go by quickly, right? And you might find that to just be easy, but it's flow for you. And for someone else, it might Mm -hmm. not necessarily feel like that. So just hearing your journey is, I think, super inspiring, because I think everybody has it in their lives. And just taking a moment to reflect, which you've done so many times, and just sharing your perspective, I think is super helpful. So I appreciate that, Sarah. Oh, thanks for saying that. I think one last thought dovetailing on that is like all of our attention spans have gotten so short because like we live life in Instagram ads and TikTok videos and whatnot. And one exercise that was really helpful for me was walking because I couldn't look at my device and it really forced me to think longer thoughts and see where my mind would wander. Cause it's really hard yeah. in this day and age to actually even let your mind wander. Cause you're getting like a buzz from the watch, a buzz from your phone, a buzz from your laptop. All of these things are vying for our attention, forcing yourself to let your mind wander, which I think is a little different even in some ways than meditating or like kind of trying to force stillness. Yes. But allow your mind to wander and see where it goes. And I think you can learn a lot about what lights you up from doing that. I love that walking. It's like active meditation. I can't sit down because my mind is always moving. Or like you said, your phone is beeping or you're doing something. But at least when you're walking, you're active, you're doing something and it allows your mind to wander. So I appreciate that. I strangely have that similar feeling when I'm on planes. I don't know what it is about like being in the air. I somehow feel disconnected and like all my best ideas just kind of come when I'm in the air. So every time I'm feeling stuck, I always laugh at my husband. I'm like, let's just go on the plane. So we're going to like an hour. No, I don't know what it is. I remember when we, uh, when there used to not be Wi-Fi on planes, it was like the best way not to be able to truly disconnect. And now obviously it's helpful that you can connect, but I think we've got to carve out those places for ourselves to allow that creative flow. Totally. Well, Sarah, I so appreciate you sharing all your gems and your story with us today. I'm so excited to see you continue to thrive in found and everything that you guys are building. And it was such an honor to have you join us today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Yasmin. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.